What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Brian Stemmel. Brian is one of the greatest alpine skiers in Canadian history. A four-time Olympian, Brian had 15 top 10 finishes in World Cup downhill and Super G races, three of those finishes earning him the podium. Inducted into the Canadian Ski Hall of Fame in 2002, Brian today is a television broadcaster, leading the alpine ski coverage on CBC Sports along with his colleague, Scott Russell. Notably, Brian also suffered a gruesome crash in 1989, racing at Kitzbühel, Austria, that put him into a coma for five days and the hospital for two and a half weeks. Given only a 50% chance of surviving, we are obviously pleased that he came out of the whole experience on the right side of that 50% and has graciously made time for us today. Welcome, Brian, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Hey, thanks, Andrew. Yeah, I'm at home in Toronto. I've uh, been in the same house for 30 years after I moved down from Aurora, and uh, I'm doing well, just uh, loving life. Excellent. Well, I have to tell you, this is very surreal for me, as just two days ago, I was sitting in my Richmond Hill living room, flipping TV channels, when I landed on Channel 5, Cable 6, where I was quite taken by the panorama of the World Cup Alpine ski racing from the beautiful Italian Alps and sure enough, you were right there on my TV set doing the race analysis for CBC Sports. I wanted to ask you how great it is to do all this traveling around the world, but I also realize some sports are now being covered locally by monitor. So were you in Italy or were you not? Please clarify. <laughs> no, I was not. That's uh, television for you, all smoke and mirrors. And it's just the way I've done it. I retired from alpine skiing in 1999, and I've been a commentator since, first at uh, Sportsnet for 14 years and now at CBC for the last five years. So uh, yeah, I just travel from my house 15 minutes down to Front Street at CBC and uh, we cover the races on a monitor. And uh, we've done that, as I said, right from the beginning. And they even did uh, that for the Beijing Olympics, the Winter Olympics in 2022. They kept everybody here in Toronto uh, broadcasting from here. So they'd fly in all the experts from Calgary and Vancouver, all the Winter Olympic experts and commentators. And we were housed in one studio in uh, on the eighth floor or tenth floor at CBC, and um, yeah, we we fake it till we make it. But uh, you wouldn't have known the difference. Like normally, the hockey commentators and figure skaters and the high profile sport people go, um, but this time they only sent um, one reporter, and we were in Toronto. So yeah, we have everybody fooled. Well, it's very interesting, and I think when you look at, for example, the Blue Jays coverage, it was quite controversial when they weren't sending people to road games and the broadcasters were concerned that they couldn't see the whole field and therefore weren't giving you the whole perspective. Do you find being able to call skiing from a monitor, you're still able to be as effective as being there? I think it's what I've always done. So, and I'm so familiar with all of the race sites and even hotels that they stay in and lifts that they take. And uh, just, it's comfortable for me to speak about it. And the the broadcasts are so good now, you can see every little detail with the HD and super slow-mo and you know, it's not the same as being there for sure, but um, I know a lot of the guys have complained about it. The Jays reporters, the Leaf Radio guys, 
Jim Ralph and Joe Bowen, um, they stay here. But when you listen to a broadcast, they're so good, you wouldn't notice a difference. So yeah, uh, they want to cut costs and save money. And uh, yeah, it just works out that way. You don't really get the inside information because you're not right there, but uh, I'm in a great WhatsApp group with people over there and uh, we share information. So it's uh, it, it works out really well, actually. It's a new kind of toolkit for broadcasters. Big time, yeah. Now, as noted, you are a four-time Olympian, but I want to jump right into what you are most well-known for, your Aurora home got a makeover that was featured on HGTV's Divine Design with <laughs> Candace Olsen. Now, Brian, how are you enjoying that striking new fireplace? Well, you can see it in the background. It's gorgeous. Uh, she did a great job, and yeah, it was a big thrill to meet Candace and her team. And I'd actually had the, a room done by the designer guys as well, Stephen and Chris, and uh, so that was my first uh, dabble into home renovation and um and they were really great fun guys but candace did a beautiful job and it was uh my kids weren't born yet uh my wife was pregnant so it was 15 years ago and uh, i don't think we've touched it since it's still perfect that's great well i do want to go all the way back get the brian stemmel story you are a york region legend where were you born and uh, describe your upbringing I was born in Toronto, but uh, my parents moved to York Region when they were younger. My parents had a business in Richmond Hill, and um, so we lived um, in King City originally on Bloomington Side Road, side road on the on the uh, west side of Bathurst, and then we moved to Kettleby um, eight years after that, and Kettleby just uh, near Newmarket, and the interesting thing now is when you drive into Cardinal Golf Course the Red Crest Golf Course on Keel Street and Highway 9. That's our old farmhouse and our old barn that you drive in between. So uh, they put up a beautiful golf course there, but that was years ago. And then uh, I moved to the, to Aurora for the last uh, 15 years and went to high school there. Dr. G.W. Williams and Aurora High School, I went to both. Didn't excel at either, but uh, I had a great time. But I was away skiing most of the time. So um, yeah, and then um, we traveled to calling or to Meaford every weekend to see my grandparents uh, my grandparents lived in Meaford uh just northwest of Collingwood and then we'd ski every weekend at Georgian Peaks so my parents were avid skiers and uh, my sister and I skied and that's how we grew up and it was a, a great upbringing and we were lucky to have uh, wonderful parents who loved skiing as much as we did excellent well it is such a great family sport and it's great family time mm-hmm Let's talk about the world-famous Crazy Canucks of the 70s and early 80s, a group of Canadian skiers made up of Jungle Jim Hunter, Dave Irwin, Dave Murray, Ken Reed, and Steve Podborski. They earned themselves a reputation for fast and seemingly reckless downhill skiing. Now, in 1980, at the age of 14, you saw the documentary movie The Dream Never Dies, focused on Ken Reed and his fellow Crazy Canucks. And Brian, you walked out of that movie theater saying what? I want to be one of those guys one day. And I didn't realize that. And uh, nicely brought that up. Yeah, my friend uh, Chaz Burkett from Kettleby Public School. Uh, I've remained friends with him for 45 years. And um, yeah, he uh, remembers going to that movie with me and me saying that when we came out of that movie. And I don't remember saying it. I just knew in my heart and stomach that I always wanted to be a crazy Canuck. And uh yeah, live life on the fast lane on the World Cup circuit and alpine skiing. Now, you came in at the tail end of the Crazy Canucks era, and in fact, your very first race in 1984 at Whistler was Steve Podborski's last race. Talk about your first-hand experience in interactions with the Crazy Canucks. 
Oh, it was uh, insane, really. I was I was young. I was only 18, and I got called up um, for that race. And uh, we'd met in Vancouver, and they said, okay, breakfast is at 8. And so, you know, I wore my track pants and sweatshirt up to breakfast at the hotel. And little, little did I know, it was a full-on press conference with sponsors and television cameras, and I was this just underdressed, overwhelmed, shy kid. And I remember... Um, meeting Todd Berker in the elevator. <laughs> I like in my squeaky voice, uh, hi, Mr. Berker. Uh, I'm uh, Ryan and uh, I'm a big fan. <laughs> anyway, it was uh, quite memorable. And then it was, yeah, it was kind of like passing of the torch because Steve Podborski was such a, a big uh, idol of mine. And I wanted to be either him or Daryl Sittler. But uh, my parents uh, did like spending time in the ice rink on the weekends, they like spending time in the ski hill. So uh, I became a Steve Borski fan, and it was cool to meet him and race against him and with him. And uh, it was kind of a passing of the torch, I felt, at that time. That's great. Well, we always do think of the great U.S. versus Canada rivalry in sports, particularly in both men's and women's ice hockey. But, Brian, being part of Team Canada, you seem to have bonded with the American ski team, not only because of hockey, but I guess because you shared the same uh, primary language of English and what is typically a very European-dominated sport. Yeah, we became great friends with the Americans, even spending Christmas with them at times in Bormio and um, on the same program because we didn't have any friends or family there. So we always got together and uh, shared some laughs and some fellowship. And uh, they were always just great, great people and, and great friends. And I got along with everybody who really spoke English and even the people who didn't speak English, like uh, Christian Gadina, one of the Italians. He didn't speak a word of English, but uh, he was the funniest guy to spend time with. All he did was laugh. So, uh, yeah, I was. we're lucky to have a great camaraderie. And every time I was in the start, you know, I'd wish the guy behind me and in front of me good luck. And, you know, because I wanted to see them succeed, too. They were going after the same thing as I was. And I, I always found that it wasn't um, so much uh, me against the other guys. It was me against the mountain. So if I performed at my best on that mountain on that race day on that day on that hill, uh, I should win, regardless of what everybody or anybody else does. Um, so uh, I always wish them good luck, and um, and they were always, you know, really uh, gentlemanly, I guess, to, back to me as well. Sportsmanship clearly was uh, yeah something that skiing offers. I want to talk to you about your four Olympic Games. Let's start with 1988 in Calgary, racing in your home country. Yeah, that was... Uh... A great experience and a difficult one at the same time. I'd torn my ACL three weeks before the Olympics and decided to race anyway. And uh, I thought I could probably be in the top 10, but um, it didn't turn out that way. Uh, I ended up falling on my side in the race and missing a gate and going out. And just remember seeing them with a camera shot of my family in the finish area, my mom, my dad, and my sister. And uh, my sister's videoing because she was a great photographer and she was videotaping and you see one tear roll down her eyes. She's got the other eye up to the camera. And I was just like, oh man, I've just crushed everybody. So that was really, really hard. But the greatest moment was walking into the opening ceremonies. Um, we had a training run early that afternoon and uh, our coaches didn't want us to go to the opening ceremonies. They wanted us to watch a video and do our dry land in the evening and focus on the race the next day. And, uh, I got our band of brothers together and said, fellas, we're jumping in this little minivan here and we're going to the opening ceremonies. And we had a police escort at 160K from Nikiska to Calgary. 
and uh, walking walking into the opening ceremonies with uh, one of my best friends, uh, Greg Grossman from Georgian Peak Ski Club, who I'd grown up with. We were always the last guys down the hill every day, and uh, he was right beside me there. He competed in slalom and GS, and uh, and some other pals like Brad King, and then people I got to know who were um, Olympians in other sports. So it was a great moment. My parents being there and family, and when you know you just. I say that's my favorite moment as a skier walking into the opening ceremonies at that time, uh, even though I didn't perform very well in the race. And it didn't happen the next day. The race was canceled the next day or postponed the next day because of bad weather. So it, it happened the following day. So we had our rest after the uh, after the opening ceremonies. Your next Olympics was 1992 in Albertville, France. Now, Brian, you fell on a training run and tore both rotator cuffs. Being a tough Canadian, did that stop you from competing? It didn't. Um, I'm not sure why. I just, you know, I wanted to kind of redeem myself from my previous Olympic experience and not finishing. Um, so I was a little too aggressive in the first training run and yeah, flew too far off a jump and wrecked both my shoulders and I couldn't take the next three training runs and I couldn't really raise my shoulders or my arms above my head. My shoulders hurt so much. So, uh, I decided to race anyway and, uh, I had to have... People help me with my downhill suit on um, because when you reach behind you, the downhill suits are so tight, you have to pull them up. And I wasn't able to do that on my own because my shoulders were so bad. But I uh, ended up falling out of the start and uh, coming across the line in 23rd, which was uh, respectable considering my injuries. Yeah, I'd say more than respectable. To still come 23rd with two torn rotator cuffs, that's incredible, actually. Now, 1994 was your third Olympics in Lillehammer, Norway. Yeah, another disappointing one. Man, these, you're killing me here. <laughs> Wait till the next one. <laughs> oh, man. That one was really tough. I would uh, I got, I for some reason, I, I always like getting the start late. So I'd, I'd arrive late, so I'd have some adrenaline and you know, only, only five or 10 guys before I was supposed to go, just five or 10 minutes. I just like that. You could take your, take your warm-up suit off, click into your race keys, and off you go. Not a lot of time to think about bad things that can happen, which always crept into my mind. So I got to the start a little late and all of a sudden they said go and I was still buckling up my boots. Um, so I buckled them up and went through the wand like 20 seconds later and uh, missed a gate at the top and uh, skied pretty well at the bottom. The rest of the way had good interval times, but uh, coaches disqualified me um, from um, our team competition because I'd missed a gate and we had a we had four spots and six guys racing for them. So uh, my friend Luke Sauter got the spot and not me, and I was crushed. I went out and got drunk that night with the bobsledders. And uh, and then a week later, I competed in the Super G and was 26. So uh, it was a, you know, a consolation prize. But um, that last training run was before the opening ceremonies. And uh, I didn't even feel like going to the opening ceremonies. And uh, I went anyway, and it was a good experience. But, you know, my... My stomach still hurt from not competing well. And I remember uh, Randy Starkman from the Toronto Star uh, sent me a note and said, can we get a quote from you today? And I said, my Olympics have ended even before the games have started. So uh, that was a tough one because I was really focused on the downhill and not the Super G. Clearly very emotional. And as you know, you got to manage the physical part, but also the mental part. So 1998, you came oh so close in Nagano, Japan, as you were leading all skiers at the intervals, but ultimately... This one was not to be. Yeah, that was the uh, most crushing moment of my career. Not not the fall in Kitzbühel, but um, 
that last one. Yeah, I, I was really focused on doing well, and I, I had so much experience from the Olympics before, and I'd done everything wrong before, and so I wanted to prepare properly this time. So I carried a piece of my piece of uh, newspaper in my pocket from the Toronto Star that I cut out that uh, had both sides of the gold medal on it, and um, so I folded that up into my pocket. And it said, Nagano Gold, Japanese mint display shows both sides of the gold medal to be awarded at the 1998 Winter Olympics in Nagano, Japan. I can recite it really easily because it stayed in my pants for for six months. Every pair of shorts I wore to the gym or a ski suit to the hill or or jeans to a movie, whatever was always in there. And, and I'd pull it out and read it and look at it. And it was a constant reminder of what I wanted to accomplish on that day and um, on Sunday, February 8th. And, uh, it didn't work out for me, um, sadly, but it was, it was, it was kind of funny because, uh, I knew I was going to win. I'd had great training runs. I was six and two training runs. And I really finally believed in myself after years of not believing in myself, um, uh, because of the injuries and then whatever. And so the weather was really warm in Nagano and, the uh, weather dictated that the early numbers were going to have the most advantage. So I could run anywhere from number one to 30, basically. And they draw names out of a hat the night before, and I got number thirty. It was the the worst number I possibly could have received, and um, it was canceled that day because of high winds. So they moved it to Tuesday, February tenth, and um, uh, the night before they went to the coaches' meeting, drew names out of the hat again. It was number thirty again. And when they handed me the bib, I said, Does, "I didn't even didn't even matter. I just put that." bib in my other pocket I had my gold medal in my right pocket and I still knew I was going to win because I'd prepared with every single number I prepared starting first second third all the way to 30th good weather bad weather wind coaches watching me cameras watching me helicopters coming in watching me because they were going to watch me win my gold medal you know I I had in my bedroom here uh, on the ceiling some people have a mirror I had a course of Nagano in eight by ten sheets of paper like 20 of them from one end of the headboard all the way to the other end of the ceiling so I could remind myself of the course and how I wanted to ski it when that day came along. And I'd look at it before I went to sleep and I'd look at it when I woke up and uh, it was just consumed by the uh, by winning. And uh, so they canceled the race or postponed the race again on Tuesday. And on Friday, February 13th, I... Uh, Got my number the night before. I was number twenty. It was much better, and um, yeah, just knew in the start that I that I was going to win, and just had that feeling that I was going to win. And ski the top really nicely. I was eight hundredths of a second ahead at the first interval, and then point three seven ahead the second interval, and there was one more interval than the finish. And um, right between that, uh, near the end of that, before a, a big jump and. And a, f- a couple turns in the finish area, I hooked uh, an inside edge and uh, skied wide and missed a gate. So uh, I was out of the race and out of the Olympics just like that. And yeah, that one hurt because uh, I didn't know how well I was doing until the coach came down and, and uh, sat beside me and said, yeah, I think you're winning. And uh, first place was Jean-Luc Crétier, a Frenchman who I was good friends with. Uh, he was star number three, wasn't one of the favorites, but had a good number and a, and a great run. And uh, he was quite far ahead of second place as well. So even if I'd messed up a little bit down the bottom, I would have been in metal territory, but uh, it didn't work out that way, sadly.
well, such amazing highs and lows emotionally over your four Olympics. But when you look back, Brian, how great was it to not only compete in four different Winter Olympics, but also to have been able to do all that world traveling? Yeah, that's what I, I was most proud of, just giving myself a chance to win and coming back from injury and, and not giving up ever. Um, even after that race, I, I cried once in our sports psychologist's arms, Dana Sinclair. And uh, really, that's the only time I've cried. But um, yeah, those emotional highs and lows are tough. But I remember them because um, because they're so prominent. I have uh, the bibs up here in my bedroom, actually, just up the hallway in my bedroom that are signed by all the other athletes. And uh, so I was really proud that I was able to compete in four Olympics, not necessarily win any medals in them, which is, you know, kind of the idea. But um, I'm still proud that I gave myself a chance to win, which uh, is the biggest thing. I represented my country and my community and everything else. And so, yeah, it was, it's big when you look back on it. At the time, it just tears your stomach out because that's all you want. But when it doesn't happen, you know, you tend to get older and reflect back and look at, yeah, all the travel, as you said, and, and all the good times with my my greatest friends, you know, traveling the world, playing our favorite sport uh, was a time of my life. It's amazing. Well, I do want to, if I may, talk about your infamous crash at Kitzbühel in Austria. I'm going to set this up for the listeners, if I may. On January 14th, 1989, you were the 24th skier out of the gate that day on your first trip to Kitzbühel, and you were having a good run when you went a little wide slammed into the netting and suffered one of the worst falls in alpine skiing history, suffering a broken pelvis, massive internal injuries, and a subsequent infection. Your pelvis was so smashed up that your body was lying in the snow on a 45-degree angle, and remarkably, you somehow remained conscious after suffering your injuries. You were put into a drug-induced coma for five days, five separate surgeries over the next two days, 25 blood transfusions, and your poor parents had to hear from your doctors that you only had a 50% chance of staying alive. Brian, do you mind sharing your experience now that you can look back at it happening almost 35 years ago? Yeah, it's hard to think all that stuff happened to me. It seems like somebody else. It's been so long, but um, I remember the pain, that's for sure. Yeah, I'd, uh, it was my first time as Kitzbühel, as you said, and it's the Super Bowl of ski racing, the Han and Kam. I, you know, I watched the crazy Canucks win there three years in a row or four years in a row, three different guys, uh, Berker and Podborski and Ken Reed, 80, 81, 82, 83. It was awesome. And um, so, you know, I thought I could do the same until I saw the hill and went, well, this is steeper than, icier than anything I've ever seen in my life. But uh, threw myself down in a few training runs and I was 24th in the race uh, before uh, on the Friday. And then, yeah, on Saturday, I got too wide in a turn and, um, there's fencing protecting you from going into the trees if you get wide in some of the turns and uh, or if you fall to protect you from going through further. And normally they have plastic on the net so you don't get your skis caught or your pole caught or whatever on the net. And uh, you can just kind of slide up against it. Unfortunately, they'd run out of plastic, which we'd ask for during the week. And uh, on the last half of the net, there was no plastic. So when I came down, I swung wide, was up against the beginning part of the plastic and then when it ended uh caught my hand in the plastic which subsequently spun me around to the left and then I caught my left ski tip in the net and uh ripped my leg backwards and that's when it broke my pelvis uh at an open open book fracture basically of my pelvis at the front and yeah that's why I was lying in the snow uh, at such an awkward angle but yeah I said tell my parents I'm all right and they lifted me up in the helicopter underneath and it gave me gave me a little bit of relief 
uh, away from my pelvis, which which helped. And then um, I remember the paramedic who was like, you get because the helicopter can't land, it has to put a slack line below about fifty feet, and then they pull you up underneath it, and then uh, take you to the hospital that way. And there's a par- paramedic who rides alongside with you, just hangs there in his harness. And uh, it's really cool. I remember seeing the tops of the mountains in the start height going, man, I'm way up here. This is insane. And uh, then the fellow asking me if I had uh du Schmerzen, he said in German, and uh, do you have pain? And I said, no. And um, that's kind of the last thing I remember. I remember being in the hospital uh, in in, in uh, Kitzbühel, this small hospital. And um, I told them not to rip my downhill suit off or cut it off because we can get money for it at the end of the year, like a couple hundred bucks. And, you know, it was, it was not exactly a roll in the dough at that point. So, uh, I remember that. And then they moved me to Innsbruck, um, because my injuries were so bad. And thankfully Innsbruck was a teaching hospital and a university hospital. And they saved my life there. Well, the postscript is that after being put back together over a two and a half month stay at Sunnybrook hospital, Brian, you fought back from those terrible injuries to win a gold medal at the 1990 Winter Pan-American Games in Argentina and that you returned to the World Cup circuit for the next nine seasons until your retirement in 1999. You also head-on faced the emotionally difficult opportunity to return to ski at Kitzbühel in 1993. Do you remember how it felt returning to the scene of the crime, so to speak? Yeah, that was pretty insane. Uh, Man, just the stuff that goes through your head, the moments that I spent leaning on my poles during the time that we get to inspect the course uh, in the same spot that I almost died going, man, I need to ski this a little differently this time. But uh, yeah, it took me a long time to get back. I was three months in the hospital, two and a half months here at Sunnybrook in Toronto and uh, shuffling around like an old man. And then yeah, a year and a half later, I I never really had skiing out of my head, but I you know, I never considered retiring. Somebody asked me um, a little while ago, how many times did you want to quit? Or not quit. I said, how many times do you want to retire, I guess? And I said, once, just when I did. And so it was always in me and in there that I wanted to go back to Kitzbühel, not to be, be defeated by a mountain. But once I was there, it was mental torture. It was really tough. Uh, just having the same familiar stuff come back, but um, had to kind of look forward and look ahead and and know what I just needed to do, which was make it down. And uh, I made it down. I was 43rd and and that was fine. It was it was a, a good moment for me. But I always wanted to win Kitzbühel like the crazy Canucks did. So I went back five more times. Uh, 14th was my best. I fell there two more times, separated my shoulder the last time in 99. And I said, you know what? It might be time to, to uh, call this thing quits. But uh, I raced in... Uh, World Championships three weeks after that, and uh, the last race was my Canadian Championship, uh, Canadian Championships in Sun Peaks in British Columbia, the resort that Nancy Green and her husband Al Rain started, our athlete of the century, Nancy Green, and uh, I won uh, my last Canadian Championship Super G race there, so that was kind of a, a good way to end things. Great way to finish things. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Brian Stemmel, Please check out the more than 175 additional episodes available anytime. We got other former Olympians, including Donovan Bailey, Bruni Surin, Mark McCoy, Sean Burke, Kent Manderville, and Elvis Stoiko. How they did it directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365 
wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Brian, how'd you make the pivot to broadcasting after your uh, retirement? Fortunately, throughout my career, my friend Nick Fellows, who does commentary for uh, the BBC and Eurosport in in London, he would always be at the races by himself in the finish. And if I started early, uh, one, two, three, four, five, they'd have me come in for three or four or five racers and then give my perspective of what's happening on the hill and what I think about the guy coming down. And, you know, I've seen him in training. And so I had kind of a, an inside scoop of what was going on. And uh, Nick and I got along really well and I, I enjoyed it. It was, it was, I felt like I was able to get back a little bit and, and let people know what was really going on rather than just watching pictures on TV, which sometimes just look like the same guy going down over and over again until you get into the nitty gritty of it and tell the story. So I started like that. And then, yeah, when I retired in 99, the job came up at Sportsnet and uh, I had one meeting with Scott Moore in a rehearsal the day before I went live on air. And Scott's kind of renowned for starting Sportsnet in the in the TV sports business. And um, he came in and wrote on a piece of paper, why with a question mark and just showed it to me. And he said, that's all I want to know is why. Why is he fast? Why is he slow? Why is he hurt? Why, you know, why, why, why? And, um, so that's, that was the only kind of coaching I had. And, and when the light came on the next day, uh, my first live television broadcast, I didn't want to be like Cindy Brady and the Brady bunch and just stare at the red light and have nothing come out my mouth. I'm like, just, I was just praying that something would come out and it did maybe not in a great sentence or quite eloquently as I would have liked, but, um, you know, I've, uh, I've learned along the way. I've had a great producer, John Paplato has been with me by every ski race ever since. And, uh, he produces a great show and yes, it's been, been really fun. I, I don't know what else I would have done in my life. So, uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity that, uh, Sportsnet and CBC have given me. Well, everyone loves a good Cindy Brady reference. So I'm glad you're able to, uh, to draw that one out. Now, Brian, you covered the 2010 Vancouver Olympics as a broadcaster instead of as an athlete hurtling down the mountain. So that must have been a very different experience. Yeah, that was really fun. It was the, uh, I'd done alpine skiing commentary with my play-by-play guy, Jerry Dobson, for a bunch of years. Jerry did a lot of soccer and uh, worked at CFTO, just one of the nicest guys around. And so um, Jerry and I, Jerry had never seen a World Cup race before live, like, and he'd called it for 10 years. So he, he'd never, never seen one live. So he got the opportunity to go out there and spend some time in Whistler and, and get up early and have some fun and, and ski a little bit together and Unfortunately, our Canadians didn't perform that well, so uh, that was tough. But um, I think Britt was fifth in the in the down. I think that was her best, so uh, that was really fun to watch. But uh, that was a great time being there, and we were lucky to see some of the other sports as well. So uh, yeah, it was one of the best Olympics I've been to for sure. The the Calgary, and then and then for sure uh, Vancouver right after that. Excellent, and a big shout out to the great Jerry Dobson, a past guest on this podcast, and just. Speak to his skill, as you're noting. He hadn't even seen a race uh, live, but uh, he always covered it with the same expertise he brought to all the sports he covered. Yeah, for sure. Brian, I want you to share the story of winning and then for a time losing your $20,000 prize earned from racing at Garmisch in Germany. Oh, uh, oh yeah. Um, yeah, well, I had this... Uh suitcase that my parents had given me and all the guys in the team used to call it Dumbo 
because the thing was massive and it would just you know when you travel for some reason when you you go your bag's full and then on the way back you haven't bought one thing but all of a sudden you can't fit everything in, anything in the bag well this thing was the opposite it could fit more stuff in the bag it just expanded and it was great because I just put it on the floor. I wouldn't have to really unpack. And then I just lift up the top of the suitcase and there everything was. And, you know, we had a few other bags, but that was my main clothing bag. And I'd always put my wallet, my passport on the in the top side of it in a zippered pocket. Just so if people come into the room, your wallet's not lying in the, you know, on your night table. So I'd always kind of hidden it there. Anyway, um, all right, we were in Garmish and I was second and I won the most money I ever had in my life, 20,000 German francs, I guess it was back then. And so put that check in my, in my wallet and then put it in in Dumbo in the suitcase. And we traveled to Spain and I'd done the same thing there at the world championships. I was fifth in the world championships. We went out and celebrated that night, ended up, you know, it wasn't just night. It was still morning when we were celebrating and uh, went for breakfast and then went to get on the bus and um, I brought all my stuff down and we're traveling back home. This is a long story. <laughs> Sorry. And um, I get on the bus and I'm like, Phew, thankfully I just made it, you know, all my stuff's here and whatever. And and I was just happy to be on the bus and ready to go home. So we got to the airport and every bag came off the bus except Dumbo. <laughs> and Dumbo just was not there. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So then these, and the bus was jam packed with ski equipment and people and everything and so the driver I tell him in my broken Spanish that I'm still waiting for one bag and he's like uh permiso one minute and so he gets talking to somebody on the radio and so I wait there like five minutes 10 minutes 15 minutes I'm looking at my watch going okay the flight's gonna leave soon this one bus shows up completely empty pulls in right beside this other guy the driver comes out they start talking to each other talking to each other I'm like what's going on they open the sliding door below there's Dumbo all by himself right in there I'm just like oh my god thankful that uh my twenty thousand dollars hadn't gone to waste and the the pocket change and the and the rest of the wallet that's great so you were eventually able to retain your winnings yes thankfully Brian, I also want to ask that when you were inducted into the Aurora Sports Hall of Fame, you had a street named after you. But I understand there was a bit of a snafu with the original street sign. <laughs> yeah, you're you're good with all the stories here. Yeah, I, the, the mayor, George Timpson, wanted to recognize my sister and myself for our contributions to the community and, and for racing for Canada and et cetera. So they decided to name a street after us. And, uh, it was in the Bathurst and Wellington area in Aurora. And uh, I drove by it one day and I'm like, okay, here's the street, just dirt everywhere. <laughs> There's only streets and no houses or anything because it was a new area that was just being developed. And I looked up at the sign, Stemmel Drive, S-T-E-M-M-E-L. They spelt it wrong. They should have spelt it L-E. So <laughs> I didn't want to you know, have to go to the township office and tell them that the, my name was spelt wrong so I had to tell my mom and she had to phone the office to let them know but uh, I wish I'd kept that sign because uh, they changed it I'm not sure what they did with the old one but that would have been good humor to have uh, put up somewhere and my favorite part is that you had your mom fix it that's great yeah like she did everything now Brian when you talk about 
all the great places you've skied around the world. I would have to imagine skiing at Alberta's Lake Louise must have been a treat. I understand not only were you able to stay at the Chateau, but that you could actually play ice hockey on the frozen lake in that amazing setting surrounded by mountains. Yeah, it's really the the crown jewel of Canada is uh, Lake Louise and the and the Chateau Lake Louise right there on the lake. Absolutely stunning. And yeah, that you we mentioned the Americans earlier. That's how we, you know, became great friends with the Americans. They like to play hockey too. So yeah, one year. And I think a few years recently since because the temperatures are cold enough there, the lake freezes and sometimes it doesn't snow um before the temperatures drop, so the lake just freezes with no snow on it. And um they have rental skates there and you could skate from one end of Lake Louise to the other, which is like two kilometers or something on this perfectly frozen glass ice that you can see the bottom through, uh, which is really cool. So yeah, the breakaways uh, were pretty long there. And if you shot the puck, like you had to, the worst thing was you'd, you'd go down to the other end of the lake and it was a nice little skate and off you go. And then you turn around and you realize you're going into a headwind the other way. So it was a long way back and uh, a little tired for the race the next day. But um, yeah, it was one of the best moments for sure. Uh, uh, any kind of skating enthusiast could enjoy. That's some great pond hockey. Yeah. Now, skiing, of course, is an international sport. Some would perceive it to be the sport of the jet set, rich and famous. You must have had some interesting celebrity encounters over your ski racing career. Yeah, I've had a few. Yeah, for sure. Um and friends with lots of people, which I was really lucky to, you know, just to be around them at times. I have to pinch myself, but um, the one one of my favorite moments was um, being in Aspen. And Aspen is yeah, lifestyles of the rich and famous for sure. And um, uh, my friend Eddie Podovinsky and Kerry Mullen, they were first and second, or first and third. And um, we were celebrating in the finish area with Wonder Woman with Linda Carter. And, uh, you know, every teenage boy was such a big fan of Wonder Woman, and or at least I was <laughs> growing up as a kid. And uh, next thing I know, we're uh, being introduced to her and meeting her and, and uh, celebrating in the finish area. So I have a great picture of Linda Carter myself from like, gosh, 25 years ago. So it's it pretty cool. That's great. I'm of your vintage. I have to back you up. It was Farrah Fawcett and Linda Carter. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And any other uh, bold-faced names you care to drop of people you may have come across in your ski career? Um, when I was at the Olympics at Nagano in 98, uh, right before the, the first race on Sunday, February 8th, I was waiting for the, the race to start. It was about an hour before. It was exactly or just about an hour and a half before. And uh, our program director gave me a phone and, or gave me his phone and said, it's Wayne Gretzky. And, uh, I was lucky enough to know Wayne, we had the same agent and, um, he said, um, uh, Hey Stan, Gretz, uh, Janet and I and Joe Sackick want to come out and watch a race today. He said, what's the deal? I said, well, race starts in an hour and a half. You can probably be here in an hour, just get a car and your accreditation gets you in and stand in the finish area and cheer me on. So they came to the race and, uh, too bad the race was canceled that day because of the win, but, um, they came to our hotel after, and uh, our Canadian chef from Whistler, who was who was with us, homie, was just thrilled to have somebody you know that famous in his presence, and uh, whipped up a great meal for the whole team. And uh, Wayne and Janet and Joe came to watch, so that was that was one of the greatest ones too. That's great. That's well, great to have the great one uh, in your corner. Yeah. 
Ryan, as we wrap up, I do want to ask, where can we best follow you on social media and where can we catch you in your capacity as a skiing analyst on TV? Well, I got hacked on Twitter, so you don't want to do that. Uh, I'm off Facebook because, yeah, that's rough. Instagram, I dabble in, but uh, I try and stay uh, stay clear of all that stuff. It's just, it can be overwhelming at times. But uh, I'm on CBC every weekend, Saturday and Sunday afternoon on Road to the Olympic Games. And uh, sometimes on that interweb thing, we're calling live races. So uh, we'll be doing a lot of live races, uh, especially from Mont Tremblant this year. Um, normally they race in Lake Louise every year. Um, for the past 20 or so years, they've raced there. But this year, they decided not to have the race there because of financial reasons. It's a lot to put on a downhill. So they've moved to Mont Tremblant. They're having two women's giant slaloms there, and uh, they're going to be fantastic. But uh, 7,000 tickets have been sold already, and there should be lots of people in the finish area. And our women's team is really great, our women's giant slalom team. So one of the girls, Valerie Grenier, who grew up in Mont Tremblant, uh, had her first win last season, and um, she's awesome. Uh, she had a bad injury a few years ago at the World Championships, wrecked her knee, and um, has come back to be really great. So I'm, I'm hoping she can do big things in Tromblot in a few weeks. Excellent. Well, it's great to hear you'll be back out there. I have to ask, in your retirement, we'll be there. Pleasure. We'll be in the studio. Remember that. Oh, you will. Oh, I thought you were going to be out there for those. <laughs> no, wow, so for the- close. I know. Oh, my goodness. I know. They're killing me. I do have to ask for pleasure. Do you still ski, and do you always keep a pair of skis and boots in your car? Yes, I uh, ski a little bit, but only with my kids. And uh, my kids aren't ski racers uh, and didn't grow up in that environment because both my wife and I work in the weekends. But they ski, they can get up and down, and um, they're on their high school ski teams. So um, that's about the only time I help out and volunteer. We have an alumni day at Georgian Peaks where I do that and do a few other things at at the Peaks uh, just to give back a little bit and show my face. But uh, I'm so busy during the winter, it's hard to get out there and ski. And with a bad hip now, yeah, not the greatest feeling either. So I'm due for a new hip. And once I get that, I'll be out there tearing it up again. It's good to hear. Well, it's really been great meeting you, getting to know you and hearing your stories. And I want to thank you for your time. And I want to wish you well. I'll be, I'll be watching the races, Brian. Right on, Edrith. Thanks a lot. It's been my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Brian Stemmel, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer. Such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster. And not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100%. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth.
Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon.